Well, good morning, church family. It's been good to worship our, our Savior, our risen Savior, who had the power to, to raise others from death to life, has the power to, to, to raise us up uh, one day. It's great to worship with you, and a special welcome to Thomas and Julie Hamilton and their daughters, Lucy, Cora, Claire, and Vivi. We are thrilled to have you back with us. Uh, and I'm just going to totally embarrass you because this is my brother and sister-in-law. Y'all stand up, if you will, for a minute. Um, some of you maybe don't know Thomas and Julie. Awesome family. Back from the field, serving in Southeast Asia. And uh, I hope if you haven't had a chance, you will get to know them. And we're going to have opportunities to hear from Thomas and Julie later in the weeks ahead. So thank you guys. Y'all can sit down. You can stand up and say stand if you want. But... But I can sit down, but um, thank you all. We, we love you and, and are so thankful God has given you this time back with us. Well, this morning, as we are reading this incredible story, uh, it, is, it is hard not to consider the problem of suffering. See, here we see sickness and death as manifesting the common experience that all human beings have of suffering in this world. And, and, and some have posed what we might call the theological problem of suffering. And it goes kind of like this. So the first point is this, and that is the God of the Bible is both all-powerful and all-loving. Second point is that an all-powerful God could prevent suffering, right? That's pretty clear. The third point is an all-loving God would prevent suffering. If He cares for us, why would He let us suffer? And the fourth point is suffering exists in our broken world and in our life experience. And so the conclusion of this argument would be that the God of the Bible must not exist. Now, now fear not. I, I got some of your attention just now. I believe the God of the Bible does indeed exist, but let's consider here uh, the problem. Is there a problem with that first point, that the, the, the God of the Bible is both all-powerful and all-loving? So, some would question, does He really love me? Others would actually question and have, sadly, His sovereignty and His power. Said, well, God doesn't really want anybody to suffer, and so, you know, He's, he's kind of just wound this world up like a clock and stepped back, and that's what we might call a form of Christian deism. Some would even, there's something that came out 10, 15, 20 years ago called open theism, where it, they even said, well, God doesn't really know what's going to happen, because if he knew what was going to happen and he's all powerful, he could stop it. Therefore, uh, in order for him to maintain his love, he can't really even, he must have limited his omniscience somehow. And of course, that is just a stupid, heretical thought. So the, Bible, the God of the Bible is all powerful and all loving. The Bible says very clearly. So the second point here, an all-powerful God could prevent suffering. Yeah? So what about the third point? An all-loving God would prevent suffering. Well, here we see point three, I'm going to argue, has some fissures and cracks. It certainly puts God in the box of our human understanding. It's basically saying, uh, I would prevent suffering in my life and those that I love if I could. Therefore, uh, God must be like me, and God would do so. Well, but if, even if we think about that for a moment, 
We parents know that we do not always do all in our power to prevent the suffering of the children that we love for higher purposes, right? I mean, maybe you moms do, but, but we dads um, may, may, may let our kids suffer a little bit of pain to toughen them up for life, right? So that they may learn to overcome pain and develop some character and fortitude. And, and why do we do that? Because, because we love them. And, and so that's why we dads, at least, don't do everything possible to keep our kids from scratching a knee, right? Um, you know, I'll hear, I mean, when my son was a little bit younger, I'd hear stories of him and his buddy Austin climbing trees and sometimes tall trees. And my wife might be, you know, uh, you, know you shouldn't do that. I'm, I'm kind of like, good job, Tim. You know, give him a little fist bump. I want him to be a, a tough guy, right? Um, but also, um, we, we may want them to learn lessons when they do hurt themselves a little bit so they don't hurt themselves a lot, right? And get run over by a truck. And, and you know, maybe it's harder when they get a little bit older. Uh, we have a harder time um, allowing them sometimes to suffer emotional pain. And yet, even there, we don't intervene with every, um, every uh, how do I say this delicately, teenage female relationship. We don't necessarily intervene in every one of those, right? Because we want them to, to, to learn how to trust in the Lord and learn who they are in Christ. So our story this morning really addresses this false premise number three, that an all-loving God would always prevent all suffering. And it shows us that God actually has a purpose for suffering in the lives of His people whom He loves. That's, that's really the point I think we'll spend the most time here. I'll say it one more time. God has a purpose for suffering. What that means is if, you're gonna have a, if He has a purpose for it, it means He's actually sovereign over it. It's part of His plan. None of it took Him by surprise. He has a purpose for suffering in the lives of his people whom he dearly loves. But we're going to see our second point is that, that God enters the pain of suffering in the lives of his people. In other words, God suffers with us. You might have a hard time believing that or wrapping your mind around that, but we're going to see that as we take a more careful look at the story. And then finally, we're going to see that God will defeat once for all and finally suffering in the lives of his people for eternity. He will indeed put an end to suffering for eternity for his people. And so this, this story that, that, that Robbie read for us this morning, the first 27 verses of it, and it continues, we'll look beyond that. We're going to go all the way to verse 44. This story is a divine story in which Jesus reveals his glory and his divine power. He's made a number of I am statements thus far in John. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he is going to prove that with a miracle that only God could do. So we're going to see his glory and his power. But this is also a human story in which people struggle with faith in the midst of their pain and disappointment in God. And so I want to invite you into this story personally. I I hope that that you will be able to experience a bit here the pain and the smell and the doubt and the faith and finally the victory that we see in this story from a human perspective. So let's, let's begin with that first point, that glorious point, that point that does give hope. And I pray we'll give you hope as you 
endure and, and seek to persevere through suffering. We all suffer at some level, and some of you are, are suffering in, in levels that are far greater than I am right now. And I just want to remind you of this beautiful truth. God has a purpose for your suffering. He has a purpose for the suffering of the lives, in the lives of His, of his people. And again, in our story, human suffering here is presented in the form of illness and death. In your story, it could be um, betrayal. It, it could be loss. It, it could be uh, uh, financial struggle. Um, it could be rejection. There's so many things that, that we do suffer with, but here we see it in the form of illness and death. And we see its effects, not only on one person, that would be Lazarus here, but we see it on the entire community around him, those whom he loves. So let's look at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now I do think, and this is a little side note, I think it's interesting that John hasn't yet told us this very story of, of Mary anointing Jesus. Okay, that's going to come next chapter, John chapter 12. But you know what? This was a story that his readers knew, okay? Mary was famous. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And, and thus far in the early church, this was a legendary story, and this was a heroine. This was a, a hero, who had poured out her heart and most likely her inheritance, right? Maybe even her prospect of marriage. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. Uh, saying, I, I love you, Jesus, this much. Awesome, awesome story. Powerful example of faith uh, that we see. And I look forward to getting into that with you. But again, we see Scripture uh, really kind of proving itself here. Um, it's, it's awesome. Okay, so verse verse. Or, or let's continue here. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. That's all. They didn't say, it wasn't a direct summons. Uh, uh, they, they said, this, this one that you love, this dear friend of yours, is sick. And, and they believed that Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus. And they believed that he loved them. And so they expected that he would show up in time. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, now note here, um, Jesus did not say that Lazarus would not die, only that death would not be his final destination. Jesus is about to say very clearly that Lazarus has died several days later. So he knew what was going on. And, and indeed, his journey would go through death, just like ours will, but his suffering had a higher purpose, and that was it was for the glory of God. And that's what Jesus says here. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Pat, Pastor Matt Carter writes, nothing happens by chance. Nothing is without purpose. Whether sorrow, sickness, or death, nothing happens to you that God does not permit for a reason. You will encounter no situation in life where God cannot be glorified. 
It doesn't matter if it's an impossible boss, a loveless marriage, a crushing tuition bill, or a dysfunctional family. God can be glorified in every situation. You need to learn to ask, no matter the situation, how can I glorify God in this? Our normal response is to ask, what's the fastest way out of this situation? But Christian maturity is learning to look at a situation and knowing that whatever you face, you face it so that God can be glorified in you, end quote. That's powerful, powerful words. I've, I've, I've shared this story years ago um, with, with, with uh, the church, but we, we've, we've grown, changed, people have left, people have come. So I'll tell the story again. Uh, and if you hate hearing a story twice, you can get on my case later. Um, but, but years ago, um, uh, when I was, I was living in Afghanistan, and I was just reminded of this story last week, I was back in Central Asia with um, my old boss, Wes, trying to encourage him, his wife, some other workers, and we were kind of reminiscing on a story, and it happened in late spring up in a very remote part of Afghanistan called uh, Chagcharan, okay, up in the mountains. And uh, the situation was such that Wes and his wife, Chris, and we had two uh, member care biblical counselors who were traveling with us. We had been at a big meeting in Kabul with all the leaders in country. And I'm trying to get home to, we're all, we're all, they're actually coming with me to the other side of the country where I lived. And we decided to do a one-night stop in Chagcharan. So we kind of a chartered little plane that took us in, dropped us, and they're going to come and pick us up the next day and, and take us to, um, you know, back, back to my town. And, and what, or my city. Well, you know, in Afghanistan, um, you should never say, we're just going to be here for a day. Uh, and it was late spring, never rains, uh, except it just happened to the night. We, our office was up on a hill, and I remember watching this incredible thunderstorm come in. I mean, it was awesome lightning and just, you know, one of those epic storms, and it starts raining hard, and we're like, oh, that's really cool. Well, it wasn't really cool because the uh, Lithuanians, not to pick on Lithuanians, they're wonderful people, but this was their first adventure as part of NATO. So they had been given this little province of the country in the mountains to kind of uh, be the peacekeeping force up there, kind of fight the bad guys up there kind of thing, and they had this little PRT, uh, and and they had decided to go out and, and do some work on improving the runway and it uh, just so happens because of their interventions and the rain, it washed the runway out. And so um, I, I went and basically knocked on the gate uh, the next day or two and said, hey, when can you guys get out there and, and repair this runway? We need to leave. And they said, yeah, uh, it's probably going to be a couple weeks. Uh, there's a bunch of mud. It's a really muddy road between here and there. And I said, listen, I'll fix the road for you. Like I knew how to hire, I knew I could buy a truck of gravel for 10 bucks. They, they spent $300 for the same thing, right? Um, you need me to fix your road so you can get your equipment out there and fix this runway that you've broken? It'd be nice. And they're like, eh, a couple weeks maybe, might be about a month before it's functional. And so um, in the meantime, you know, I had my family and I really did not like to leave my family for long periods of time. Uh, and Chris, Wes's wife, and Wes were due the following week to be in Boston for their son's graduation from college. And so I was working, you know, I had a sat phone and a radio, and at that point in time that the roads were uh, very, very dangerous. I had done it before. I had actually driven from Chagcharan to the city where I lived uh, before, and it was like a 16-hour back-breaking drive, probably one of the reasons why I deal with back trouble today. Um, 
And, 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 and at this point, though, uh, basically the bad guys owned a big section of the road, and it was pretty much 100% chance of getting abducted or killed if you tried to do the drive. So that was out, right? Um, but I'm working, I've, got, I've got a sat phone, I've got a radio, and I'm working all kinds of options. You know, there, I heard about a Russian airstrip, about eight-hour drive to our west, but there was a, a certain warlord out there that I had a warlord buddy, and I'm trying to see would they guarantee safe passage or not, uh, but there's a river. We weren't quite sure if we could make it across the river or not, so we're trying to get a little intel on the heights of the river. So I got all these things going on, all these options, trying to figure out how we get ourselves out of there, Right. Well, Wes is my boss, but at the time, Wes didn't even live in the country, so he's just kind of letting me handle things, and, 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 and he's reading this little book called The Red Sea Rules, and we went through that, if you remember, and so um, I'm having Chris, Wes's wife, kind of whisper in my ear and say, hey, Troy, you do know that in five days, Coco graduates. Um, we're going to make it, right? And, and, and Wes is like, hey, Troy, get this. Red Sea rule number one, realize that God means for you to be right where you are. He's, he's sovereign. And of course, Chris has kind of given her, her husband the stink eye. Um, but but, but and then Red Sea rule number two, be more concerned for God's glory than for your relief. Well, I'll be honest with you, I found his discipleship a little bit obnoxious at the moment. Um, later, a couple months later, uh, after we had actually gotten rescued by a helicopter, which is really cool, a couple Navy Sea Kings in the middle of Afghanistan picked us up, which is pretty awesome. Um, <clears throat> and I appreciate it to the Navy. Thank you. Um, but, but after that, uh, and after I had reflected on it a little bit and looked back at some of my attitudes, I was probably trying to take the bull by the horse, or how do you say that? By the horns. The bull by the horns instead of maybe trusting God uh, and, and bathing everything in prayer. Uh, I went back and I read that book. And I was like, wow, the Lord really worked in my heart. When my mom got cancer, I gave her that book. And she gave that book to about 20 different people, right? If you haven't read it, The Red Sea Rules by Robert Morgan is awesome. But the point here is that God's glory is more important than our relief. And, and, and we need to recalibrate our hearts. We need His help to recalibrate our hearts to really care about His his glory, oftentimes when we're down and when we're hurting and when we're weak, if we, can, if we can say to him, I love you this much to worship you in, in this situation, man, that, I believe that touches his heart. It's kind of like why we're here. Well, we see Jesus saying that this illness was for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So there's no doubt Jesus loved these people. These were some of his most intimate friends, right? They're almost like family. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Did, did you, did, does that make sense? Be, because he loved him, he, he stayed longer and didn't go and, and heal him and help him. How, how does love and providence here go together? Well, the bottom line here is that God has a higher and a much wider vantage point than do we. We have to submit to that fact. In fact, that's a lot of what walking by faith and not by sight through hardship is all about. Believing that God indeed sees the big picture 
and still loves us and has a higher purpose that maybe he hasn't yet revealed to us. Pastor Matt Carter has more to say about this. He writes, this passage shows that the glory of God and the love of God are not at odds. Jesus stayed for two reasons. Verse 4, for the glory of God. Verse 5, for the love of the family. God's glory and his love for you are not enemies. Reject the temptation to put or to pit the, the two against each other. God's glory is displayed chiefly in his bottomless love for his people. Now, now we know, again, we have this vantage point. You know what's going to happen, right? Even beyond what Pastor Robbie read, we know that Jesus was going to heal Lazarus, but his timing and his method would be different from what Martha and Mary expected. So in verse 7, then after this, this was after two days, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now the disciples weren't so concerned about these weighty matters of divine providence and, 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 and healing. They're worried about their own skin here. And they're worried about Jesus too, but hey, they're with him and they're worried about their safety. So their response was, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Remember that Bethany is just a you know, a, a rock's throw from Jerusalem, right? That's where they fled for their safety. He says, the, disciples, the, the, the Jews were just trying to kill you and you want to go there again? Well, Jesus answers with this kind of what might seem like a little bit of a riddle to us. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, the, the metaphor here is that Daylight equals safety, right? Uh, and, and, and night equals danger. And so there will certainly become a, a time of night. That would be the danger of the crucifixion. But that time has not yet come. And so Jesus is saying, hey, guys, thanks for your concern. But remember, I am the light of the world. And, and, and so, as long as you are looking at me and following me, you got your eyes on me, the light, you don't really need to worry about danger. Um, let's not forget Jesus Christ is the Son of God, uh, all power in this universe, right? Uh, perfectly safe until his time has come to die. And we need to remember that too. Uh, if, if God's calling you to, to serve and it looks dangerous to other people, or maybe dangerous to yourself, if he's indeed calling you to this thing, if this is something, and it's biblically, a biblical-rooted spirit calling, um, not, there's not a, until it's your time, there, there's not a, not, not, a, not, a, not a hair, not a scratch, okay? You can have confidence in him. Uh, and if it is your time, uh, if there is some pain associated or even death associated, you, you have a glorious promise of the resurrection, So after saying these things, verse 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now there's places, Jesus, other places Jesus used that analogy, sleep to talk about death, uh, maybe temporary death, okay? Um, And in the Old Testament, you can find places where sleep is associated with death, Uh, but here the disciples clearly didn't quite get that. Um, they're very much, you know, they're, they're really thinking in the moment here. Uh, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, what, what are you doing? 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So, so once again, we, we see from our vantage point, God's higher purpose for suffering in this story. That the glory of God in the miracle that Jesus is about to do, but also the faith of his disciples, that, that belief, that faith. Faith is very, very important to Jesus. Our, our faith really matters to the, the heart of God. And so a big reason for Lazarus's suffering here that we get to see that he didn't know, his sisters didn't know, that the sickness that led to death and their grief was so that God would be glorified and that his disciples would really believe. And they're going to need that faith down the road. They're going to need that faith. So Thomas, verse 16, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, and, and you know, cue the Eeyore voice here, in my opinion, right? I, I don't think it was, um, let us go that we may die with him. I think it was probably a little more of a Eeyore sigh. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, some called him Doubting Thomas. I have a brother named Thomas. So I'm going to stand up for Thomas here, okay? Um, I think Thomas gets kind of a bad rap here. One commentator I read called him Logical Thomas. And that's probably a better word here, right? Uh, Thomas is very logical, and he's saying, you know what? Uh, there's a whole bunch of people in Jer Jerusalem and Bethany who want to kill Jesus. He's dead set on going. Um, let's go die with him right? Maybe a little bit of a dark horse here. Well, the problem here is do we follow Jesus only when he makes sense to us? And I'm going to call Thomas, not logical Thomas, I'm going to call him loyal Thomas because he was willing to go with Jesus even when it didn't make sense. So verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, now, in the Jewish culture, there was this idea that the soul might ho hover over the body for four days, okay? The Bible doesn't actually say that or back that up, but that was just kind of the cultural understanding here, right? So after four days, Lazarus was really dead versus mostly dead. <laughs> Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And I, I honestly, I think from the context later, I don't think, I think Mary was in such grief she didn't even know that Jesus was arriving. So Martha just takes off, she gets to Jesus, and, and she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, now, this is a lament that Martha makes to Jesus. I bet that Mary and Martha had had their eyes peeled as Lazarus was struggling for his life, maybe, maybe struggling for each breath. They, they had sent for him, believing he was coming any moment. They had great hope. They had been looking out the window, maybe, maybe on the hour running outside just to look in the horizon, is he coming? And, and he hadn't, and, and he died. And so was there disappointment here? Yes, there was. And, and so she's expressing this pain, this doubt. 
and, and even this faith to Jesus. And, and so, so she's saddened, and yet we see faith underneath that because she's saying, I know you had the power. I know you had the power. You could have healed him. And there's the question, you know, why, why didn't you? Why are you late? And yet she, she, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So there's this, this submission to his will all at the same time. But she expresses, like many who had gone before her, heroes of the faith, like David or Habakkuk, who had cried out to God, why? Why God? This doesn't make sense to me. She expresses her heart to, to, to her, her, her master, her savior, her Lord. And what I think is really important here to remember is that Jesus does not rebuke her for it. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't say, how, how dare you question me? He, he comforts her. He loves on her. And he says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Like, he didn't have to say that. He could have had her wait until the miracle. But he gives her these words of comfort, like, take heart. He's going to rise again. And maybe that was a little too much for Martha. You know, she didn't want to have her hopes dashed again. So she says something that actually showed great faith as well. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus responds to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, Jesus didn't just say, I have the power to resurrect your brother. No, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he offered eternal life to all who would believe. One of the most poignant, theologically rich, and important statements of Jesus Christ for all time. This, this, was all, this all came about because of this suffering that Martha and Mary were enduring. So can you see God's purpose in Martha's temporary suffering? We, we have the vantage point to see that. And so she says to him, in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. What a powerful statement of faith, the most powerful statement of faith from a human in the book of John thus far. Equal in magnitude to Peter's great statement in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16. I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. She got it. Like, like others hadn't yet quite gotten it. This woman, Martha, got it that, that Jesus is the very divine Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. She got this, and that, that He is now entering into the world, making, about to manifest His glory. So let's just remember when we think through all this pain and suffering that God has a higher purpose for our suffering that we may not yet see. But our second point this morning is that not only does He have a purpose for it, God enters the pain of suffering in the lives of His people. Look at verse 28. When she had seen this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now when, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And let me just stop and say here, um, Mary was not dressed in a dignified black dress. Okay? Uh, Jewish custom, when a loved one died, you would not wash for days. You would often throw dust in your hair as a sign of mourning. You would not wear shoes. So this was a unwashed, smelly individual here with just dirt and dust. And of course, Jesus would have showed up from a long road you know, journey looking pretty much the same. This is what we see here, okay? This is the reality here. And she cries out to him. She says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The very same lament, word for word, as Martha. They had likely said that over to one another over the last couple days, maybe a hundred times, if he had only been here. And so she, like her sister, just laments and pours out her honest, the groan of her heart to Jesus. And so we read in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping, and, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, now the language here that the, the Greek word here uh, implies an actual involuntary gasp of pain. Uh, just like a, maybe like a, just a groan that you don't even mean to make that came out of Jesus' mouth. He was overcome by grief. And so he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 reads, two words, nine characters, shortest verse in the Bible, probably the most profound, maybe, verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Now, the Greek word here for weep doesn't mean that he like fell on the floor and rolled around out of control. What it means is that he just lost control of tears, and the tears just flowed down his cheeks, right? Um, and, and the Bible says that we too are called to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15, and, and Jesus is the one who modeled that for us. And, and he wept not just because he decided, okay, I'm going to be a good example. It's because he felt the pain. He experienced the pain. He entered the pain of those whom he loved. And so the, the next time that maybe you're tempted to feel like a, a mouse in a maze, maybe in the maze of, of divine providence that you feel is harsh, I, I hope that you'll remember that Jesus weeps with you. He weeps with us. And, and I want to say here, lest you think, well, that's just the humanity side, that Jesus the human, that's not God. I want to remind you that, that the Bible teaches us that Jesus shows us the very heart of God. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, Jesus exposits, like I'm trying to exposit this passage of Scripture, Jesus exposits the heart of the Father for us. Kent Hughes writes, we have a great God and Savior who loves us, who delays and stays away, who allows us to go through ultimate extremity, and then he comes and enters our sorrow. He enters the sorrow that he could have prevented in such a way that he gasps, his whole body shudders, and he begins to weep. That's what we see here. God weeps with his people 
as they suffer. So I just want to remind you, church, to beware thinking that somehow God's sovereignty, His divine providence, His his control over all things, somehow diminishes His love for you when you suffer. As one pastor put it, His delays are delays of love. Do you believe that? Sometimes it's hard to believe that. In fact, in verse 36 and 37, we read, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. That that was incontestable. That was clear to them. See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? And and they kind of had a point. But, But God's ways don't always make sense to us because we might do them differently. And, 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 the, and if we're humble, we have to realize that's because we see the smaller picture. We don't have God's vantage point. Well, the, the Bible teaches that God suffers with us. And, and, and nowhere more than at the cross. You look to the cross if you question that. God himself, God the Son, chose suffering. God the Father suffered as he watched his Son, as his Son actually suffered his own blows on the cross that our sin demanded. God suffered with us in our human experience and for us, for our redemption. And that's our final point, verse, uh, chapter, uh, point number three, verse 38 and following. God will finally defeat suffering in the lives of his people. And we have to remember, uh, wisdom is thinking long term. What we see, what's right in front of us sometimes, God has the eternal picture in mind, and the long picture in mind. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. We might think, well, Martha, uh, why so practical? But let me tell you, um, if you smelled the smell of death, uh, this wasn't just about a smell, this was about honor, right? This was about wanting to prevent insult to injury. Um, and, and, and Jesus simply said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Now don't miss this. They wouldn't have taken away the stone without the nod from Martha, okay? She, I mean, the family was the one who made that decision, And so Martha chose not to lean on her own understanding here, but to believe Jesus. She consented for them to move that stone. And so Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, there's a lot we could talk about, but the hour is late. Um, There's a lot that John doesn't tell us about. Like, what happened afterwards? What kind of party did they have? I mean, what what did Lazarus have to say about all this, right? He doesn't tell us. But what we see here through this story is that God has a higher purpose for our suffering than we may be able to see from our vantage point. 
And he doesn't just passionately then, or passionately, excuse me, sit there and watch his children suffer from a distance. No, he empathizes. He enters the pain of our suffering. And, and Jesus did that very thing through his incarnation. By living the life of a true human, he suffered with us throughout his life. We see here that emotional suffering. He wept. And we know that he suffered for us on the cross to put a final end to our suffering. And so as we land the plane here, let's for a moment kind of flip that narrative. Okay, we've been thinking about Jesus and Mary and Martha and his disciples, but let's think about Lazarus. The the story of Lazarus is the story of every true Christian. If you know him, if you have repented from your sins and looked to your Savior Jesus with genuine faith, maybe mustard seed size, but genuine faith, he has brought you from death to life spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2 says, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which once you, want, you, you went, once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he's done that for us spiritually. And he will one day do this for us physically. First, First Corinthians 15 ties the resurrection, the future resurrection of every Christian to the actual historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it ends by saying in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we will not remain dead but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And, and so the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection as Christians to eternal life is God's final answer to the problem of suffering. And we read about what that will look like. In Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Help us to believe this, Lord. Help us to believe that despite our suffering, you indeed are on the throne. You have a plan for our lives. You have a purpose for that suffering. And you truly deeply love us and are there to comfort us and even grieve with us. But Lord, even greater than that, we thank you that you have promised 
if we will trust you, if we believe in you, if our eyes are on Jesus, the light of the world, that one day you will indeed end that suffering and that we will be with you for eternity. Help us live in light of that this week. I pray in Christ's great name. Amen.